Well, it's great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I was reading in the newspaper just the other day and stumbled across a story of a man who lived in the Chicago area. And he was uh, leaving early in the morning to go get groceries. And as he was driving down the road to go get groceries, he noticed that there was a pizza parlor there along the side of the street, and he noticed that there was smoke coming up from the roof of the pizza parlor. And then as he looked a little bit longer, he realized that not only was there smoke, but there was fire too. So he decided to pull over. Uh, He went up to the front door of the pizza parlor and was banging on the door. Nobody would answer. He realized that there were three people inside that he could see, but they were kind of ignoring him. He kept banging on the door until a lady came to the door and kind of said, we're not open, like too early for pizza, dude. And uh, he said, your place, your pizza parlor, it's on fire. Uh, She started screaming and opened the door, and he asked immediately, are there any people upstairs? And she said, yeah, there are a couple apartments upstairs. There are two men upstairs. Well, he happened to be uh, picking up groceries for the city fire department because he was a fireman. So he knew what to do. He ran up the stairs, and when he got up the stairs, there was so much smoke that he couldn't see anything. And he bumped into a man who was walking around trying to find his way out. He was able to get him down the stairs, but he knew there was still someone else up there. He ran up the stairs and started yelling and calling out for the other man. And at this point, he said it was really bad. The smoke was thick and heavy. It was from floor to ceiling. It started to seem like it was hopeless. Uh, He said in his words, I decided to make a crawl for him. I got on the floor like we do. I crawled. I couldn't see anything. I just crawled until I found him. I pulled him to the floor and pulled him out. Uh, The city fire chief later said there are two people alive because of this man. He said he crawled with no protective gear, no regard for his life at all. He went in for the people. He is an honor to the profession. Uh, Later, this fireman, the rescuer, said any firefighter would have done the same thing. Uh, Noticing smoke, noticing flames, banging on the door, telling the truth, and saving lives. Well, what about us? As Christians, when we see spiritual smoke or spiritual fires, are we willing to pull over, bang on the door, do whatever we can to tell the truth and potentially save lives? Are we willing to put ourselves out there like that and get involved, even with the possibility of rejection? Let's think about that. Think about that question as we jump into our brand new book, Second John, and explore the first three verses together. I think we'll find uh, maybe the question to that answered as we travel through these three verses. Uh, Let's read together 2 John verses 1 through 3. Read them together. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Uh, So before we can really explore the text, we kind of need to look a little bit at the background because we're entering into a new book. Uh, We see here that this uh, passage begins with a typical Greco-Roman greeting. It's a to and a from. We didn't have that in 1 John. But this one's not typical because it doesn't give specific names. It doesn't give the specific names here. It says, from the elder. Uh, That's the Greek word presbyteros. And it can mean someone who's older in age. But it also means someone who's in authority. Uh, It was used that way uh, concerning people in the Jewish synagogue. 
Uh, for example, in Mark eleven twenty seven, it says Jesus was walking in the temple, chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him. So it didn't necessarily mean people who were older, but people with authority in the Jewish synagogue. Same thing in Acts 4, 5. Uh, on the next day, rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. There are many references to elders concerning Jewish leaders, but just reminding us that presbyteros, elder, means someone with a position of authority. And that carried over into the Christian world as well. Uh, we see in Acts 11.30, for example, in the church, it says they did so by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So now the church had elders. Or 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching showing us that pastors are elders. And then 1 Peter 5.1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So this term elder, presbyteros, was used to describe someone with authority in the church. And I'll just let you know ahead of time, there's lots of uh, controversy in the scholarly world regarding who the elder was, the author of 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, obviously, the original audience knew who it was. Uh, when they heard these letters, when they received these letters, they knew who the elder was. It was clearly a man in authority, and we believe that it was the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, uh, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation as well. Uh, we believe that because that's the record of early church history. That's how the book received its name, 2 John, uh, 3 John as well. There was a man named Polycarp who was an early Christian leader. Uh, he was the bishop of Smyrna in the mid-2nd century, and he was actually appointed bishop by the apostle John himself. And he wrote that all three of these letters, plus the gospel, were in fact written by John. Uh, Irenaeus, a bishop of Lyon uh, near Smyrna, which was about 30 miles from Ephesus where John lived in his last years, uh, he said that these letters were written by John. And then Papias, another early church father, uh, he wrote, although his uh, letters, his writings haven't survived, but they were quoted by others, he said that John was both an apostle and an elder. Uh, so we're going to conclude uh, that this was written by John. You might read somewhere else that the elder was not John, but we believe it to be John. You see the same themes as you study the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. You see the same things and the same themes carrying through, the same vocabulary, the same language. It, it clearly seems like this was written by the same person. Another thing interesting about John is we remember from the gospel that he doesn't refer to himself by his name. Uh, do you remember what he calls himself in his gospel? The disciple who Jesus loved, right? Uh, so it would make sense for now, him now to refer to himself as the elder. And then add to that the fact that I've mentioned before that, you know, John was the last surviving of the apostles. And it was really important to him to transition the church well. Uh, so it would make perfect sense for him to go from John the apostle to John the elder as he was handing off the baton, so to speak, and transitioning the church from an apostle-led church to an elder-run church. Uh, we even see Paul doing this in Acts 20, 17. He calls together the leaders of Ephesus, and he transitions the church to the elders there. So Presbyteros, the elder, we believe that to be the Apostle John. Next problem, the elect lady and her children. Who's that? Uh, that's another one that a lot of ink has been spilled about the identity of. Uh, the elect lady in Greek there is actually eklekte kyria. Eklekte meaning uh, elected or chosen, and Kyria, just a way of saying lady. Uh, so some have said maybe it was an actual woman named Eclecte, and some have said maybe it was an actual woman named Kyria. 
Uh, but we believe that it was a church that he was writing to. And the members of the church were her children. So a church and her children. It seems to make best sense to take it that way. If you look at the 13th and final verse in 2 John, it says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So the children of your eclecte sister greet you. That would mean two sisters both had the name eclecte, and that would be kind of a stretch. Uh, again, we see this uh, meaning that you have a sister church that's greeting you. So uh, John was writing from a church to another church, a church greeting a church. And this uh, personification or metaphors that were based on the language of the noun used were very common. Uh, we've heard before that uh, the word church in Greek is ekklesia, and that is a feminine noun. So it would make sense to refer to the church in a feminine way. And we also see that the church is referred to in a feminine way in the New Testament. Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians 11.2 refers to the church as the betrothed virgin. And Ephesians 5.24 refers to the church as a wife. So, although there's controversy about it, we believe that the elect lady and her elect sister and the members there refer to churches and the members of the churches. Okay, one last housekeeping thing. Uh, it has been suggested that these three letters came together as a packet. Uh, if you remember when we studied 1 John, there was no typical Greco-Roman greeting there, not a to and a from. It was more of a sermon. Uh, some scholars believe that that sermon was accompanied by 2 John as a cover letter. It was a cover letter for the sermon, which would make sense. It was a specific letter written to the church that the sermon was delivered to. And 3 John was actually a letter of recommendation. We're going to see that it was written from the elder, from John, to a man, to a person, to receive the one who was carrying the letter, Demetrius, into his home. So we've got all sorts of fun things to look at here. Uh, we're going to see 2 John really focuses on when not to show hospitality, and 3 John, when to show hospitality. So we're going to see that these letters are also interwoven. It just makes sense that they came together as three in a packet. Now, 2 and 3 John are the shortest books in the entire New Testament, each has about 200 words, and some have said, scholars have said, they happen to be the most overlooked books in the New Testament. But we're going to get four lessons in each one of these books for a total of eight lessons. So we're going to get to dig into these books and really uh, mine the meaning of the rich truths that God has for us there through the writings of the Apostle John. So now let's look at the text. Uh, 2 John 1, just to begin, it says, the elder to the elect lady and, our, and her children. So the elder to this church and the members of the church whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So John is beginning by saying that he, along with all believers, love this church. They love one another. And so that's our first point, just to start this off. Love like Jesus. Uh, they don't only love, but they love in truth. Love like Jesus. This is a community of believers who are called and charged to love one another. And we know, having studied 1 John, this is nothing new to the writings of John. There's such a strong emphasis on this charge and this call to love. The foundation of that is built in John's gospel, John 3.16, a verse we all know. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the foundation for our love is that God loved us and he gave his son. And then there are so many passages in 
the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, that uh, reiterate this call for us not only to know that we are loved, but to love in the same way. Let me read just a couple of those as a refresher for you. You can jot these references down and look them up later. Uh, John 13, 34, and 35. Uh, this is such an incredible, rich passage that we should all commit to memory uh, so that we can live it out. But John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, what a great statement Jesus made there, and what a, a challenge to us. He says here, a new commandment I give to you, but it wasn't a new commandment. The Old Testament said that we are to love our neighbor and love our brother. And yet it was a new commandment because Jesus upped the bar there. He upped the bar by saying, just as I have loved you. When you think about Jesus's love for you, uh, what he did to love you, the extent of his love for you, uh, when you just think about that or meditate on that for a few moments, realize that you're now called to love the same way. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And to top it off, the watching world is going to know that you're Christians because of the love that you have for one another. John 15, 12 and 13, same truth, same thing. This is my commandment. Okay, Jesus, what's your commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. Again, considering the way that Jesus loved you and realizing you're called to love others the same way. Then he adds, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. It's a high call, a high charge. First uh, John, First John 3.16, we studied this recently. By this we know love. By what do we know love? That he laid down his life for us. And we ought, we owe it to lay down our lives for the brothers. It just makes sense. He laid down his life for us. Now we owe it to lay down our life for the brothers. And then the last one, 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love. Okay, so this is it unpackaged. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Remember, we studied that, to take on the punishment that our sins earned. And then he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we owe it to love one another. I mean, we could spend our entire time just mining through all of John's passages regarding love and this charge to love, but we will see and we will have to acknowledge that God's people are called to love. We're called to love because Jesus loved us. He gave his life for us and he calls us to do the same for others. Remember the firefighter that we looked at? He had no regard for his life at all, right? And that was just to do his duty as a fireman. Well, us as Christians, we are to love with no regard for our life because Christ loved us. And so we love others. And we might think that just makes sense. And it does make sense. But we must all admit it isn't easy. It's hard. It's hard to love this way. It's hard to love this way because there's a lot of difficult people out there. Uh, difficult people in our communities, difficult people here in church. I know I've been referred to as difficult. <laughs> I get it, right? Uh, difficult people under our own roofs, difficult people in our families. It makes it hard because people can be and they are difficult. But if you're finding it difficult to love, just keep in mind how much Jesus loved you, how much he loved you and how to the extent that he loved you and the fact that he never gives up on you. And then remember that the difference between you and that difficult person, no matter how difficult they are, is minuscule 
compared to the difference between you and Christ. And yet he loves you. He doesn't give up on you. And he's calling you to love. But as our passage reveals, there's a component to love that we sometimes forget about. We sometimes forget that it goes hand in hand with love. And that is truth. Our text clearly points out this necessary connection between love and truth. They're so connected that they're like heads and tails on a coin. Uh, to separate the true, you would have to demolish the coin. You would lose the integrity of the coin. Truth and love, they go hand in hand. Let's look back at our text. Second John, uh, let's look at the end of verse 1 and then end of verse 2. Whom I love in truth, there they go hand in hand. Not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. As believers, the truth, it is in us and it will be with us forever. This unchanging truth. And this is critical to John as he's handing off, you know, his apostolic leadership to the church as he's the last apostle. This is critical to him because he sees that there is a spiritual fire in their midst and he needs to put it out in a sense. Uh, remember back in 1 John, 1 John 2, 19, speaking about these false teachers who were setting spiritual fires, uh, saying they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. People who were there in the church, who sat under the same teaching in the same chairs, you know, they ate the same donuts and they went out and they tweaked the gospel. And John's saying that is a spiritual fire that needs to be put out. Uh, we're gonna see that in 2 John. If you glance ahead to verses nine and 10, uh, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this is how much of a fire it is. Don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's serious stuff there. And John's not afraid to call it out. Now remember, we just pointed out how John is so loving. His name throughout church history was the apostle of love. And yet he doesn't divorce that love from the truth. And he's ready to call things out when he sees spiritual fire because he loves. He sees that necessary connection. So if we're going to love like John loved, we also need to tell the truth. The second point here is love enough to tell the truth. I mean, love means we are going to tell the truth. We're not going to turn a blind eye when we see sin or falsehood or whatever it is. The Greek word for truth, aletheia, means that which is consistent with reality. And we've got to live in a way that's consistent with reality. Uh, half of the uses of the word aletheia or truth in the New Testament are used in the writings of John. So he's got this heavy emphasis on love, and he's also got this heavy emphasis on truth. He is the apostle of love and the apostle of truth. He is like a spiritual firefighter, and he's putting out spiritual fires with truth. And he calls us to do the same thing. We need to spot, fight spiritual fires with truth. Now, uh, again, we see so many emphases on truth throughout John's letter, but there are kind of three buckets that we can throw them into, uh, and there are many passages that speak to truth in the writings of John, but the first is just a reminder that Jesus himself is the truth, right? Uh, we all know John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we know that John revealed that Jesus himself is the truth. Uh, we see the same thing when John records Jesus' conversation with Pilate. Uh, Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? 
Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king. This is in John 18, 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world. What's the purpose? To bear witness to the truth, to himself. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, because Jesus is the truth. So everyone who uh, listens to his voice listens to the truth. And then 1 John three nineteen. by this we shall know we are of the truth. We're Christians and reassure our heart before him. So again, clearly throughout the readings of John, we can see that he testifies that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus himself called himself, referred to himself as the truth. Uh, we also see that truth abides in us as Christians through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God causes truth to abide in us as Christians. A uh, couple passages here, John 14, 17. It says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Who will be in you? Who dwells with you? The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, John 15, 26, it says, when the helper comes, Jesus speaking, I'll send to you from the father, the spirit of truth. He bears witness about me, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And then one last one, John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So God's Holy Spirit uh, causes the truth to be in us and to remain in us because the spirit of Christ is in those who believe. And then the last component is that if we abide in the truth, if we're in Christ, that truth, the Holy Spirit of truth, the spirit of Jesus moves us to obey his commands. First uh, John 1, 6, we saw this. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, that's like living a lie, living in sin, we lie and don't practice the truth. We don't live consistently with the truth, Jesus, and the truth that's in us. First John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. First John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but deed and truth, connecting truth with our actions, with what we do. And then the last one, uh, Third John, which we'll look at soon, Third John 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, indeed, as you are walking in truth. And again, like the love side of this, we could spend our entire time unpacking truth in the writings of John. But it's important that we see that uh, being a Christian means that we are committed to truth because Jesus himself is the truth. God's Holy Spirit causes the truth to indwell us. And as Christians, we are moved to live consistently with the truth. So anything that would be outside of truth is betraying the Christ who saved us and redeemed us and dwells within us. We have got to speak the truth. We've got to be people who speak the truth. We've got to speak the truth to the world around us about a holy God, a God who's absolutely morally perfect and cannot, will not tolerate sin, so much so that he will judge sin. He's angry with our sin. And the only hope for all of humanity, no matter who you are and where you live, the only hope is putting your trust in Christ, who, as we read, is the propitiation for our sins, is the one who fixes our sin problem. No one else can fix that problem for us. And the way to have his propitiation credited to us, the way to be in Christ, is responding by one way, and that is repentance and faith. And that's the truth. And we can't change those things. We can't alter those things. We can't pick and choose the parts that we want. It is the gospel. It's the truth, and it's what we must speak. 
We can wrongly think that if we love somebody, when we see sin, we're going to look away. We're, we're just going to let them do what they want to do because we love them. Why would we want to make their life difficult or complicated or cause drama, right? But looking the other way is like seeing a fire and driving down the street and not doing anything. We have got to tell the truth if we love. That's why Ephesians 4.15 calls Christians to speak the truth in love. And that's what John did. That's his whole motive. That's his whole reason for writing this letter and the next letter. We're called as Christians to love. We saw that. We're called as Christians to speak the truth. And when we do that, when we love, it means we're putting the interests of others before ourselves. It means that we're not uh, counting our life as being worth anything because Christ has provided for us. We're willing to put ourselves out there to even be drained, so to speak, to keep communicating the truth. And we do this with our kids. We love our kids. We see them in error. We tell them no and we correct them. And then shortly afterwards, we see them in error. We tell them no and we correct them. And then again, we see them in error. We tell them no and we correct them. We do that because we love them. And uh, for some of us, uh, that process could have been extremely draining to the point where by late afternoon, early evening, you're saying, I don't care anymore. Do whatever you want. You know, get the spray paint and spray it on the walls. Who cares at this point, right? But that's not true, and it's not loving either. It's not the right thing to do. Even though it can be exhausting, we can't give up on truth. Uh, recently, my son, uh, my oldest child, my son, uh, who is not following Christ, he let me know that he had been listening to a series of um, podcasts on philosophy by a non-Christian, and he wanted to talk about it. He wanted to discuss it. And I can remember we were in our kitchen. I was sitting at the table. He was over by the counter, and he wanted to discuss these podcasts. And we were going back and forth, and he basically had come to the conclusion that to be brutally honest as a human, you must embrace agnosticism. Well, it was a long and drawn-out conversation because I have to be right, and he has to be right too. We're very similar in that area. So it's just back and forth and back and forth. And he's very smart, very educated and very smart. And it was one of those times when I just felt absolutely drained. I was just feeling weary and he kept going and going and going. And I felt like I was out of my pay grade. I needed Pastor Mike there, right? Like Pastor Mike could just fix this, but I can't do it. My brain's fried right now. I felt so exhausted and so drained. And then um, his youngest sister was still living at home at the time. And she came downstairs having heard it all for a while and just said, Ben, bottom line is you're going to go to hell when you die. And it was like... Okay, there you go. We got to the point, right? You know, but the conversation just continued and continued. And I don't know if you've ever been worn down like this before, but I got so worn down that for a second, for this brief moment, I thought, what if he's right? I mean, I know he's not right, but you get to that point sometimes where you get so worn down that you even start to question what your entire being represents. And I thought, what if he's right? I mean, what if there is no God? And I started to weep. And I was crying because I thought, if there's no God, I can totally identify with the Apostle Paul right now, where he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we have hoped in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. I've given up my life for Christ, literally. There are things that I never did because of my allegiance to Jesus. And there's things that I did do because of wanting to follow him and obey him. And I just started to weep. I was so worn down. And then I thought, oh no, he sees me weeping. He's not gonna wanna talk again. He's gonna think that, you know, uh, because of the conversation I'm crying and then we'll never get in a conversation like this again and I don't want that to happen. And I said, Ben, I just wanna let you know I'm not crying about you right now. It's me, I've got some stuff I'm processing on my own. And it was so odd because he looked at me for a second. He goes, what do you mean you're not crying about me? <laughs> and then he said, 
I hope you're crying about me. He said, I would hate to think that you don't care about me anymore. And I just thought that was so funny because even though we didn't, uh, on the outside, make any progress, he realized that, you know, if you care about him, you will continue to contend for truth, even when it's not what he wanted to hear. It's hard to do, it's draining, but it is right. And someone may hate you for it right now, but if they repent later, they will love you for it. That's what the scripture says. Uh, think about Proverbs 27, 5, and 6. Proverbs 27, 5, and 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Also, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then one more. Proverbs 9, 8. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. When this person becomes wise, when they repent, they're gonna turn around and love you for speaking truth. But it did say that when you reprove a scoffer, he's gonna hate you. And clearly John realized that. Uh, John was hated by the false teachers. He was hated by those who were setting spiritual fires. And look at what he says in verse three of 3 John. He says, uh, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Uh, it's interesting because in John's greeting here, unlike Paul's greetings, uh, Paul uses the same terms, but Paul will say, grace and peace be with us, or grace, grace be with us. But John speaks in the future. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. This will be with us. There's an eschatological promise here that no matter who rejects you or spurns you or the scoffer is, God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. Keep on going, even when it's hard, even when you're rejected, even when it hurts. And that's the third point. Love the truth even when it hurts even when it hurts, because even though it's going to be hard now, John is certain that the, the grace, the charis, the favor of God, uh, the mercy, the elios, the uh, forgiveness of God, and the peace, the irony, the uh, well-being despite our circumstances that come from God will be with us both now and in the end. So we've got to keep loving the truth even when it hurts, even when the words feel or seem hard. I think about John the Baptist. If you remember John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 7 and 8, what did he say to the people who weren't following Jesus that came to him, to the religious leaders? Uh, he said in Matthew 3, 7 and 8, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, that's gonna hurt your feelings, right? You go out there to see John and see his baptism, and he says, you pack of snakes. Who warned you about uh, this? You need to bear fruit. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you know what? Jesus spoke the same way. Jesus spoke the same way. If you read through Matthew 23, the whole chapter is loaded with language like this. I just pulled two verses from Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28, Jesus speaking, woe to you. Woe means like scream out in anguish. Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He's saying on the outside, you might look good, but on the inside, you're rotten. You're horrible. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? That's going to hurt your feelings. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, yikes. It is not looking good. He said, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's not gonna feel good. And yet it was truth. 
Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, and the most truthful man who ever lived, said things that hurt people's feelings. Think about this one. Uh, think about the account of the rich young ruler. Uh, I looked at it in Mark 10, 17 through 22. We see these two concepts blended together so well. Uh, the rich young ruler, it says in Mark 10, 17, he was setting out on a journey, Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him. So this guy gets down on his knees before Jesus. He's in a posture of humility, right? And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, that must have looked great. This guy getting down on his knees before Christ saying, good teacher, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus trying to show him God alone is holy, right? You're not good. Uh, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this guy says to Jesus, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Okay, well, Jesus knows that not, that's not true, but it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. That is the Greek verb agapao, from which we get agape. He had agape love for him. He loved this guy. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. He was hurt. He was sad for he had great possessions. Jesus loved him. Jesus spoke the truth to him and he went away sad. He had his feelings hurt. Does the next verse say Jesus chased after him and said, wait, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings or make you sad. No, right? Jesus let him go. Uh, truth has the potential to hurt the feelings of the one who hears it, but it doesn't mean that we get to stop speaking the truth in love. We know the Bible says that God's word is a sword. Hebrews 4.12 describes it as a sword that divides, that pierces, and that hurts, that doesn't feel good. Biblical truth and biblical love are more important than hurt feelings, even though our culture might tell us the opposite, right? We can't put hurt feelings above biblical truth and biblical love. Listen to these strong words of Jesus in Luke 12, 51 through 53. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's hard. That's hard. John's message was rejected. Our message will be rejected at times, but we need to hold up the truth even when it hurts. But let me remind you, as we do this and we're called to do this, make sure that when the message is rejected, it's the message that's rejected and not you, the messenger. That means you need to do this in a way that's consistent with the call of Christ on your life. Uh, think about 2 Timothy 2, 24 and, 2, and 25. It says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So we need to speak the truth but we need to do it with gentleness and kindness and patience. When it's your turn, let me just give you seven little words that you can go through to do this maybe more right than we have been in the past. First, just pray. Start 
by praying. Before you get into these conversations, start by praying. Just pray. This is God's work. You're just the messenger. Second, stay calm. Stay calm. Don't make it about you. Uh, don't get angry. Don't raise your voice. Don't lose your temper. Just stay calm. The third is listen. Listen and listen. Sometimes we just want to shoot off our arguments or shoot off our set pat statements that we're really missing where the real need is or the heart of the person. So let them talk and listen. And we know that's draining, right? It can be exhausting to listen to these people go on and on and on, but we need to listen. And listening, uh, you know, would imply that the majority of these conversations would take place face to face. I mean, I know sometimes we can write letters and letters are good, uh, but usually it's not the right place to have these intense conversations through text messages. I mean, sometimes that's successful, but often people miss the heart they miss the love and the kindness in that. And then after listening, speak the truth. Just speak what you know to be consistent with the truth of the gospel. And then do that in love. And by in love, we're going to mean with kindness and with gentleness, with a complete willingness to give up yourself for the other person. And then when you're done, pray again, pray afterwards. You never know what God can do with the seeds that you've sown, the truths that you've sown. And then the last one is just don't be caught off guard. Don't be caught off guard if you're rejected. And if they want you to stop, then stop. You can stop. If they don't want you to talk about it again, then you don't have to talk about it again. But don't be caught off guard. Don't be overly hurt when you are rejected. And you probably will be rejected at some time. I mean, you might even end up canceled, right? I mean, we all might end up canceled at some point if we are committed to love and committed to truth, biblical truth and biblical love, we might end up canceled. So let's be at least like the firefighter who doesn't have any regard for his own life, but is willing to save others. Let's not worry about how we appear or how others will respond to us, but let's really be committed to speak truth. And you know, we have a great team to do that with, and that is with each other. We have an amazing team here, and we've got to stick together now more than ever, meaning we've got to put aside all the dumb and the petty stuff. Uh, remember, we live with people who can be disappointing and difficult, but we've got to stick together now more than ever. We've got to get rid of all the, you know, I don't like the way she does this, or she always does that, or she's going to think she's so cool if that. Put it all away. Let's link arms now and let's be a team. This is our team. We've got to stick together, especially as the world around us gets darker and darker. And you know, that's what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we're going to encourage each other. We're going to link arms. We're going to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, and the day is drawing near, isn't it? The firefighter said any firefighter would have done the same thing. When it comes to putting out spiritual fires, let's have it said of us, any Christian would have done the same thing. I read this um, excerpt from a book. I just stumbled across this book. It was called John Todd, The Story of His Life Told Mainly by Himself. And I just thought that title was interesting. And since he was a man of God, I skimmed through it. And I found a part in the book where he said that when he was six years old, now this was published in 1876, so that was a long time ago, and you can understand why he was asked to do what he was asked to do, but when he was six years old, his dad was super sick, 
And his dad told him, asked him to get a prescription that was on the um, nightstand by his bed. His dad was just really not feeling good. And take that prescription down to the pharmacist and get it filled because he needed that medicine uh, very desperately. So this boy, um, John, he went down to the pharmacist and he found that the pharmacy was closed. Well, he had gone a half a mile to get to that pharmacy, and he didn't want to go any further. Uh, he knew that the pharmacist lived a quarter of a mile further, but he just didn't want to go. So he decided in his mind, I'm just going to tell my dad that they ran out. So he went back home, and his dad said, did you get the medicine? Do you have the medicine? And he said, no, um, the pharmacist didn't have any more. He lied. Uh, shortly after that, he was called back into the room with all of his brothers, and they sat around the bedside of their father, and his father addressed him last because he was the youngest. And his father said to him, never forget after I am gone that you have a better father in heaven. Ask him to take care of you, pray to him to be your father, and make you good for Jesus Christ's sake. Love him, obey him, always do right, and speak the truth because the eye of God is always upon you. He knew that his dad knew that he lied. And he felt so convicted. He left the house. He went all the way to the pharmacist's house to get that medicine. He got the medicine. He hurried back as fast as he could. He finally got home. When he burst into his dad's bedroom, he was told to hush it and keep it quiet because his father had died. It was sad reading this. He said, my dear father was dead. And the last thing that I ever spoke to him was a lie. Even though it's not easy, even though it's draining and exhausting, let's make sure that we don't walk away speaking a lie, you know, by withholding the truth, by not telling the truth. Even if we get rejected, even if we get canceled, let's love enough to be completely honest with people. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this amazing group of women uh, who love you and love one another. God, uh, we thank you for Christ's call to love. We pray that you would help us all to do better, Lord. And as we're called to love, help us to do better at communicating the truth, uh, that we wouldn't shrink back when we're rejected, that we wouldn't cower when people's feelings get hurt, that we would make sure that we're always communicating with gentleness and kindness and respect, but God, um, please help us to be people who don't compromise the truth. We know that you are the truth, that your truth dwells within us and your truth drives us to be the people you've called us to be. God, help us all to do better. Thank you for the team of sisters that we have here to link arms with. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.